Dotnet Rocks, episode 1064, recorded Monday, November 17th, 2014. Welcome back to your Geek Out show. It's Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're going to geek out on space accidents today. How are you, my friend? I'm well. You know, as usual, the the slight stress of reading about other people's suffering. Yeah. But, uh, you know, feel like I'm doing some good here. Hopefully. Um, I have something interesting for Better Know Framework today. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Well, uh, you've heard of iBeacons, right? They came on the scene from Apple last year, and they're these little tags that your iPhone can read uh, and learn about their proximity. So basically, you put them on different things around a building or a room or an indoor facility. You think of an art gallery, right? And then as you walk around a different painting... It recognizes that you're close to the beacon and then something can happen. But um, but it's an iPhone or an iOS device, and uh, it, we've been hard-pressed to find them for other phones or other devices. Sure. However, uh, Qualcomm makes a $5 gimbal beacon that can be detected on Android phones and iPhones. Nice. Yeah. So if you go to – there's a very nice blog post – uh, tinyurl.com slash crossplatbeacon and the the uh, uh, P-L-A-T, crossplatbeacon. And the blog post says, building cross-platform iBeacon apps for iOS, Android, and Windows with C-sharp and Xamarin. Nice. Regular standard development technology. So with one code base, you can basically write an app that works across all these platforms. Uh, Windows Phone... 8.1 is not supported uh, because of the hardware. It doesn't support Bluetooth low energy, BLE, yet. Right. Um, but uh, apparently it's it's going to happen. So. This yeah, was, well, uh, that, that's sort of level Rev 4 of Bluetooth, and they, they just got to catch up. Yeah. So this article is from April 24th, 2014. I did follow the links to Gimbal and... Uh, very difficult to find how do I get one on this page. I had to scroll down all the way to the bottom and this little uh, text said store. So I clicked on <laughs> store and I got to a thing where it wanted me to register. So I registered and then uh, I clicked on some other link that made it seem like I could go to the store. And I had to register again with a different password, different password requirements and once wow. I got there, then I could order these things, and you can only order three at a time. So, fifteen bucks plus shipping gets you three of these things, and then there's a developer kit, and you have to sign, you know, the agreement and all that stuff. So, but it is interesting, and I'm looking forward to messing around with it. Awesome, dude! Nice find. Yeah, I thought so. And it's one of those topics. It's clearly going to have to have its own show at some point. Absolutely. Is, you know, but it always has to be an applied case. You need to see what these things could do for you. Right. All right, my friend, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 968, and that is the geek out we did with Uncle Bob when we talked about interstellar space flight. Right. 
basically just a, uh, an, a variation on a bar conversation that we were having with Bob anyway. Right. <laughs> and, and Roland Tepp said, uh, hey, you guys talked about interstellar travel and discussed all manner of engines from nuclear to light sail tech, but all of those have a hard limit of, yes, you guessed it, speed of light. Yeah, speed of light's a real pain, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things, right? <laughs> it's not just an it, idea, it's the law. It is the law. And considering that the closest lights are so far away, it would take a lifetime to reach them, even at the speed of light. Well, not a lifetime. I mean, four years at a minimum. Although, you know, you can't go as fast as speed of light. There's that whole end of the universe thing going on. Uh, how about faster than light travel? People at NASA are working on warp drive technology, and they have some level of confidence that it can be pulled off, which is true. They There is some researchers at... Uh, uh, at NASA that we're trying to, we're playing with, would it be possible to warp space, actually a warp drive? But the initial energy requirements are so great, it's like you had to have your own star to make it work. Right. <laughs> uh, and then another researcher found some other options that actually lowered the power requirements to only, I think you only need your own Jupiter to make it work. <laughs> but, you know, improvements. Yeah. And they actually modeled it. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for this uh, that Roland references, which is this is what roughly what the ship would look like. But, I mean, the reality is we haven't built anything yet. You know, it's 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 a, even Roland says it looks like a PR stunt. Right. But, uh, you know, the it's interesting to play with this idea. The whole point here, you know, now we get back to this idea of considering how many planets there are and how many are in the Goldilocks zone, like you work down Drake's equation, where are the aliens? And if they have faster than light travel, you know, then it really, where are the aliens? Mm. Uh, but that's all the debate. And and I think there was a conscious decision between us when we were talking to Bob, let's, let, let's just stick with, you know, more known technology, stuff that we can actually test and have gone with, but we, you know, there might be a whole other geek out we could do there on some of the faster than light ideas that could be done. Yeah, sounds good. So, Roland, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. Well, this is a really exciting day, Richard, because, uh, as you said, you've been sort of pouring over the news and you know, it's kind of sad, but um, there uh, there have been a lot of changes since the, the space shuttle went out of commission and a lot of yeah. uh, private companies getting in. And that's just going to mean more accidents because, you know, the, these companies are, are anxious to get started and that's that's the way it goes. Do you think that uh, that that has something to do with it, that they're just, you know, a little less careful because of the market? That's an interesting question because, you know, we, the, I mean, if we're going to talk about space accidents, we could go down the whole roster, Apollo 1, Challenger, mm -hmm. Columbia, and so forth. But I really wanted to focus on that crazy week when at the, on the beginning of the week, there, the Wallops Island explosion happened when the Antares rocket blew up. And then three days later, uh, the accident involving Spaceship 2. Yeah. It seems like during the Cold War, when we were racing to get into space, we had more accidents. And now that, you know, the sort of money is on the line and fame and uh, who's going to be the, the leader in private space travel, we're, we're sort of having more accidents. I don't know if you think that's, if there's something to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's something to be said there. Because clearly, the Antares rocket, that whole system... That's orbital sciences, and and they their Cygnus system is 
part of the commercial resupply service that NASA is doing. Hmm. And that, that requirement has been around a long time. You know, NASA was told for quite some time, you need to develop commercial options for space, hmm. going back into the 80s and 90s even. Mm-hmm. But once the space station started being built, in 2000, Congress said quite specifically, we will authorize you to spend money to get commercial resupply and even crew transport to the space station. And so then NASA started putting out these bids, and there was a bunch of different companies that applied. One of the old ones was Orbital Sciences. The new one was SpaceX, and those two are the ones that won those contracts back in 2008. And we, we've talked about SpaceX mm-hmm. before. Everybody knows I think SpaceX is a the far more visible company, and they they built a new rocket, Falcon Nine, with the Dragon system. They actually have upload and download. You know the way that NASA constructs these contracts is really interesting, and I think it's important to understanding the accident. Yeah. All NASA said is for a certain price. You know, in this, if you're talking about SpaceX, for one point six billion dollars. You have to move 20,000 kilograms of supplies to the space station. Right. And a smaller portion, I think it's about 10,000 kilograms, bring it back unharmed. How many missile flights you do with that is up to you. Like they, all of that was secondary to the point. The main sure. thing here is they were literally buying transport. Right. I need to move cargo up. I need to move it back. It has to be in certain conditions. Like it must remain pressurized. Can't go over a certain number of G's, certain temperatures. So that you, you know, those are the guidelines that they put in place. Not what rocket, what methodology you use. Like all of those things were sort of up to you. Yeah. And then SpaceX then spent money. You know, certainly they the the uh, the CRS program supplied them with money when they made milestones so they could actually do development on this stuff. You know, for better or worse, you can call it commercial space, but NASA still paid into their system, mm. but it was part of this $1.6 And they developed a, really a dedicated rocket and transport system for that. Now, there's other things that they can do with it, but it is the beginning. And in a lot of ways, you could make this a parallel to how aviation got started with the u.s mail starting to transport right. mail by aircraft although yeah. in this case they built a custom vehicle or a custom aircraft to do the job right now and and again spacex very visible we've toured their facility it's awesome uh they're doing you know they've been quite successful with what they've been doing so far because it's all dedicated Orbital Sciences is a very different company from SpaceX. Okay. For starters, it's much older. Their original, they were founded back in 82, and they've always worked with NASA. Now, just to, for some context here, Orbital Science is the one who built the Antares rocket that blew up on right. October 28th, right? Yeah, that's the one that, that's the one that went up, right? And, mm. and, you know, SpaceX has had their problems. They've never, they haven't lost a payload to the station yet. Mm-hmm. And I hope they never do, but they, uh, it, this, these are the guys. And, the, you know, Orbital Sciences started out as a company that was building, they were always been contractors to NASA. They built some specialized vehicles and so forth. Their big business was satellites mm. for a long time, and they still build satellites. There's a bunch of low Earth orbit and, and geostationary orbit satellites built by Orbital Sciences up there. Yeah. They're a, and they're a bigger company, you know, uh, they're a billion dollar company. They've been around for quite a while. And they started, uh, later on in, uh, you know, they started back in 82, but it was, uh, later on in their lifetime in the early 2000s that they started building actual vehicles 
Mm-hmm. Um, their first vehicle was a thing called Pegasus, which I thought was really cool. It was an air-launched uh, rocket, sort of like Spaceship Two. It was unmanned. It was the, what they were trying to do was get the cost of lifting stuff to low Earth orbit down. So they would use an L ten eleven, which is an aircraft, uh, much like a DC ten, to lift this rocket up to forty thousand feet, and then the rocket, the Pegasus, would fly up into low Earth orbit. About a thousand pound spacecraft could be put up that way for about thirty million dollars. Yeah. Which the time when you considered that every shuttle flight was five hundred million dollars, pretty cheap. It was a breakthrough, no two ways about it. And it had some failings. And a thousand pounds back then was was pretty not a lot of weight for a for a uh, a satellite. You know, modern telecommunication satellites come in more the ten thousand pound range. Right. But we're starting to build super lightweight cubesats and things now that are ten pounds now, too. So, Richard, we we talked about this before on a space show. Um, but the space shuttle itself, while, you know, a, a spectacle and, you know, something to be very proud of, yeah. wasn't all that efficient, was it? Mm-mm. They tried to do too much. I mean, now you're talking about how you talked me into doing these geek outs in the first place, my friend. Right. Like that story of the fact that the space shuttle was they trying to do too many things. They were trying to make a pickup truck and they were trying to make it redundant like an aircraft so that it would actually fly with some things broken. I mean, every time you get on a commercial airliner, I guarantee you not everything is working on that airliner. That's Mm. how they're built. They have Mm. enough redundancy. They can tolerate that. And they wanted to build a spacecraft that way, but it never worked out that way. They never were able to actually reuse one, right? Well, not really. They were more rebuildable. They would essentially, when a shuttle landed, they would have to dismantle it, refurbish the engines, redo the tiles. There was so much change that it never could get the price down. They could never fly a shuttle more often than twice a year. Mm. And you just, you know, imagine a 747, you only flew twice a year. Yeah. It just was never the practical machine. And several other fundamental flaws. We've, we, one is, do not strap a spacecraft to the side of your rocket. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that's, it's just not a good design. Yeah. It doesn't work. Uh, and the other one was that mixing passengers and cargo isn't a good idea. Hmm. You endanger, cargo has different requirements and different rules, and you endanger passengers when you do that. Hmm. There was no way to get out of a shuttle. In both the case of, of Challenger or Columbia, even if they knew what was happening, Mm. was ha- it was happening in advance there doesn't seem to be any way they could have actually survived yeah. it's just not that kind of machine right and again i don't really want to make the show about this no but it, i mean it, that that is a good pretext to why yes. these why all these rockets are 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 where they are and the, and the way that they went with this thing and i think one of the most interesting things about orbital sciences that makes it very distinctive from spacex is it's an older more mature company mm. and they learned early on in experimenting with rockets starting with pegasus that you should invent as little stuff as possible Mm. and because they were so well connected in the aerospace industry pegasus was their first rocket design their second rocket design was called taurus and Mm -hmm. they flew it primarily for the military and it actually used old icbm technologies now this is not an unusual idea when you look at all the original Delta, Atlas, and Titan rockets that NASA flew, they were all ex-nukes. From there, they went on to build, like, Delta continued production to make some uh, non-nuke versions, and then and Delta IV and Atlas V 
were both sort of the first rockets built by the established aerospace industry that were built as space rockets. But yeah. taking old ICBMs and turning them into, into uh, space rockets is a normal thing. And that's what uh, Orbital did with the, uh, with the Taurus rocket. Uh, not that it made it perfect by any stretch of imagination. They had a number of rocket losses. Uh, they, they, they renamed their Taurus line the Minotaur line because it had enough failures. I think they thought it was a bad name. Yeah. So they actually changed that, but they used to use these, uh, old peacekeeper missiles as their space launchers. So when the opportunity to do the commercial, uh, uh, resupply mission came along and Orbital got a chance to play in it, mm -hmm. they needed to build a new rocket to do this. Their, their Taurus and Minotaur lines, they didn't have the lift sufficient to actually take the kind of payloads that um, the that NASA was demanding for the space for the space station up that far. It okay. was a bigger, heavier lift, so they needed to design a new rocket. And okay. in keeping with their tendencies uh, of using existing technology, the Antares rocket is largely derived from existing technologies. Mm. And here's arguably the most interesting part of this whole design. So uh, the rocket engines that the Peacekeeper missiles use that they use in the Taurus line, they're solid fuel. Right. And uh, they continue to be manufactured under the, line, under the name Castor. There's the Castor 120, which is pretty much the same size as the Peacekeeper missile. And then there was an upgraded version called the Castor 30B, which is the more powerful one. So they use that as the stage two rocket in this Antares rocket. For the stage one, in order to get enough thrust, they decided they had to go with liquid propulsion, which is not that unusual. Lots of liquid rockets before, but certainly the first time that Orbital had really worked with liquid propulsion. And hmm. they wanted to use existing technology, you know, as low risk as possible. And they ran across an engine. Is it because liquid is lighter or, or at least well-known weight than a uh, solid rocket fuel? The, why, why the advantage of liquid, the advantage of liquid propulsion is, uh, it's very high performance without a doubt. It loses weight very evenly. The, as you, as it burns down the fuel, the tanks become empty. Mm. Uh, it's lighter for its amount of thrust and it's more throttleable. You can turn down how hard you run the engine, how soft you run the engine along the way. Typically, once you light a solid rocket, just like you saw with the space shuttle, mm. it's on. Yeah. And they don't run for very long. There's a lot of thrust for a short amount of time. They're very powerful. Okay. So let's do a blast from the past. So the Antares Stage 1 engine was actually, uh, the engine was called an Aerojet 26-62. Okay. Now this is a two-bell engine with a common uh, uh, pump core. And it was actually a Russian engine. It hmm. was a Russian engine called the NK-33. Are those the ones now, they use on the Suez rockets or close to no, it? No. These are actually older than that. Wow. The NK-33 is derived from the NK-15 engine, which was the engine used by the N-1 moon rocket. The Russian moon rocket from the 1960s Wow, used this engine. But it's not a huge engine. In fact, the N-1 moon rocket, its first stage used 30 of the NK-15 engines. Hmm. And if you ever go, you, most people never heard of the N-1 moon rocket, and there's a good reason for that. They only made four attempts to fly that rocket, and all four of them failed. Hmm. 
And then the mission, the, the project was shut down because by then the, the Americans had made it to the moon. And so they sort of, they just stopped, but they had built a lot of these engines. And even though the project was shut down, the engines weren't destroyed. They were put into storage. So these engines were built in the late 60s, early 70s, and then they were stored in a warehouse for 20 years. And then when the wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed, sometime in the 1990s, an enterprising group of folks found this warehouse full of hundreds of these old engines. Wow. It was like 150 of these engines. And so Aerojet, the U.S. company, bought 36 of them for about a million dollars each, huh. which is less than a tenth what they were worth. Right. Now, they didn't just buy these engines because they were cheap. These engines, even though the design was so old, were really, really efficient. And I take okay. it they were all brand new, not used. They were new, but they'd been stored for 30 years. Yeah. And so, you know, there's concern, like, the current thinking, and we, this is only, you know, we're doing this show only a couple of weeks after the accident. They, none of the reports are out yet, but you can see from the footage, it looks like the main engine failed. Mm. And then the whole rocket is destroyed uh, by the range controller. And we'll talk about that in a bit. So th I'm talking about the engine that is the likely suspect in the loss of that rocket. Mm, okay. So just to understand the design of this engine. I'm gonna, I'll want compare it to a couple of other engines. Uh, the, the, the AJ-2662 has a total thrust at sea level of about 338,000 pounds. Okay. Which is pretty good. Now, compare that to, uh, if you want to talk about the most modern engine in the world, you would talk about SpaceX's Merlin 1D, the rocket, the engine that's on the Falcon 9, uh, and actually the 9 1.1. It, only, it has a thrust of about 147,000 pounds. So this is double the thrust. But a Merlin 1D is a standalone single bell engine. Mm -hmm. And the NK33, the AJ2662, uh, 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 is a double bell engine. So it should be about double the thrust. Mm -hmm. What's clever about the Russian design, it is, a, it is what they call a closed cycle engine or a stage combustion cycle engine. So when you're making rocket engines, the hard part of a rocket engine actually is getting the fuel and oxidizer into the engine fast enough to create enough thrust, hmm. right? You're emptying swimming pools per second hmm. to get the fuel into that engine and burn it. That's got to so be you fast. Need, <laughs> it's a really, really powerful pump. And you got to pump it very evenly in the right mixture. You got to be able to vary the speed of the pump. So how do you get a pump that powerful? You use the fuel you have on board, right? Hmm. So if you compare the Merlin engine, which is a, almost the same design as the F1 engine that ran the Saturn V, that's what they call a gas generator cycle engine. So they just burn the propellant, which in this case is kerosene, what mm -hmm. they call RP1 or you know, rocket propulsion one to spin a turbine that turns the pump. And the exhaust of that turbine is just let out into the atmosphere. That's why it's open cycle. Okay. So it costs you some performance. You're going to burn a certain amount of fuel to run the pump hard enough to actually run the engine. Okay. So the fuel runs the pump and which pumps the fuel into the engine. Pumps more fuel, more into, fuel the engine, into the engine. Yeah. Right. In a closed cycle engine like the the uh, the AJ twenty six sixty two, 
the exhaust from that, you're still burning the kerosene to run the pump, but you actually pump that exhaust into the engine chamber and it's oh. part of the overall combustion. Huh. That it's could a be very, weird. it's a tough design. Yeah. You're pumping partially burned fuel into an engine that's having additional, much more fuel pumped into it. And it's being and pumped for, is it being pumped in a, uh, is it? outside pumped and pumped with the the atmosphere around it or is the exhaust taken directly from a pipe and pumped in directly piped into the combustion chamber okay and pretty much only the russians do this engine design and this is not the only one like this the rd180 which is the engine that the atlas 5 uses is the same design like the, the, both the, the AJ2062 and the RD80 engine, although the RD engine is dramatically bigger, are this one turbine fuel pump system to two combustion chambers, two nozzles. Well, maybe there's a good reason why all these engines are sitting in a warehouse for 30 years, because maybe they're a little too dangerous. I mean, the AJ26 engine you're talking about was tested, uh, and, and there's a report, um, from May 23rd about, how uh, just a couple of days prior, they were doing a test of this at Stennis E1. And at, at 30 seconds, they had to abort it because either it exploded or it malfunctioned, but something went wrong. Yeah, this is not good, you know, because this is not a far from a description of what may have happened on that uh, CRS mission. Mm. Uh, that something, yeah, something failed on this engine and it blew up. Stennis is, I've, I've actually toured the facility, is where they test all kinds of rocket engines. Mm. And admittedly, this closed cycle combustion is an unusual engine design, mm -hmm. but it has been, like the RD-180 uh, that they use in the Atlas V, it's worked consistently. Yeah. But they are new builds for the RD-180s, where these are old engines. Like, my concern would be, what kind of corrosion, what kind of damage happened in 30 years, and how far did they disassemble them? How much work do you do on that engine when part of the challenge here, you know, the goal when you're talking about the CRS pro project for Orbital, Orbital's trying to make money here, right? Yeah. Orbital had an agreement to lift eight missions for 20,000 kilograms of, of payload up to the space station for $1.9 billion. That's a flat fixed rate. And uh, they charged a little bit more because they were going to take larger payloads. But that, uh, you know, the cost matters here. You know, they, the whole thing about this commercial resupply is that you are trying to control costs. The approach that the Boeings and the Lockheeds take for those sorts of things is what they call cost plus funding, which is you pay whatever it costs. And if we make our milestones, we get profit on top of that, which yeah. doesn't really incent cost savings at all. It costs what it costs because one of the risks when you're going to cut costs like this is you're going to use a 30-year-old engine that might fail on you. Right. And admit it, you know, what? I wanted to bring up this engine because it looks like it's the issue. It's a really impressive engine, but nobody's built any of them in 30 years. Yeah. Well, so, then there may be a good reason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I don't want to indict the design, but it is important to be aware that that's what this is. And that was the intent. Right. Right. Was to try and make this thing efficient. And, and this is the part of this whole plan that I think Orbital knew the least about. Their Cygnus spacecraft, the thing that actually resupplies the space station, carries the payload and so forth. Yeah. That's yeah. based on known technology. They actually, again, 
They reused existing technology. They use their service module, which is basically the same stuff they use on their satellites, attached to a, uh, a pressurized cargo module that was based on the design that the space shuttle used to take up to the space station, mm-hmm. the MPLM. Right. So all known technology all the way through. Right. That's the, they, they did their best to use nothing but known technology in an effort to control costs. Hmm. The rest of the rocket design, a lot of that low first stage was designed by, Ru- by Russian firms who knew how to use that engine and how to use the tankage and so forth on it. Right. But it's hard to control how old that engine is and yeah. what consequences that might have. But, you know, good find on your part to find here's another case of that engine failing. I wonder if they took into account uh, the fact that be, uh, that it might fail because it was so cheap and took a risk and tried to do it anyway. Well, it, I, you know, it's hard to know that for sure. It's interesting to see what Orbital's doing about this. They've already announced they won't be using those engines again. They're looking for a different engine for their rocket. Hmm. But in the meantime, you know, they've only successfully completed two of the eight missions they're supposed to send up. This was the third one. It's the one that failed. So they've lifted about fifteen or uh, five thousand kilograms of supplies to the space station, and they're on the hook for the next fifteen thousand. Hmm. That was the deal. Wow. And if they're going to redesign their rocket, it might take a couple of years. And they're right in the midst of the negotiation for the second phase of these contracts. So you know what gets interesting now is you're on you you know. You don't want to blow the next round of contracts. You've got to get this right. You can't just declare bankruptcy. You can't just walk away. Right. You've got to make a deal. So apparently, right now, uh, Orbital is talking to other rocket suppliers to hmm. see if somebody else could provide them with a rocket to launch another Cygnus spacecraft. I mean, the good news is because Orbital is such an experienced spacecraft builder, they know they can put that Cygnus spacecraft on almost any uh, any rocket. Hmm. And so uh, I went through the list of possibilities of what they could use to launch that thing to the space station. Uh-huh. And uh, th- there's only a few choices. There's Lockheed's Atlas V, right? And that uses a similar engine design to the NK-33. That's the RD-180, but they're new engine builds. Mm-hmm. The problem is that they uh, have such a heavy flight manifest already, I don't think they have any rockets available. No. There's Boeing's Delta IV, which we've probably never really talked about before. And the Delta IV has lots of power, but, and again, this is the difference between commercial rocket design and NASA rocket design. Every Delta IV rocket is really a custom build. They mm. build the rocket to the payload. Mm-hmm. So while they might have, they have four missions in 2015, mm-hmm. they probably don't have the parts to build another rocket in time to help uh, uh, Orbital with their mission requirements. You know who the most likely candidate would be to actually provide them a rocket? Tell me. What would be the funniest choice? Uh, NASA. <laughs> SpaceX might have a rocket. Well, SpaceX. We knew SpaceX has rockets, and yes, why, why aren't they in the quite, game? That's a good question. Well, they are in the game in the sense that they're flying their own uh, or cargo capsule, the the Dragon capsule, to the space station. But imagine. Their competitor coming to them and saying, hey, can we uh, buy a rocket from you to fly our spacecraft to it? Now, wow. the funny part is here is that the Cygnus spacecraft, the, the, the thing that actually takes the supplies up to the space station, is larger than Dragon. It'll carry more payload. Normally, 
they only put 2,700 kilograms of payload into a Cygnus. But that's not a limitation of the Cygnus itself. It's a limitation of the Antares rocket. Yeah. So they could push that payload up to 3,300 kilograms if they had a more powerful rocket. And guess what? SpaceX's rocket is more powerful than the Antares. Isn't that funny? Like, in some ways, you could argue that the Cygnus payload carrier is a better payload carrier. It doesn't have return capabilities like the Dragon does, but it can carry more load on their rocket. I think it would be good for the industry if they actually did this. Because the way SpaceX is building their rockets, they can scale production a lot more efficiently than Lockheed or Boeing can. Hmm. And it, and for less money. So, but it is a question, you know, how is Orbital going to pay for this? The, their margin on that 1.9 billion is pretty narrow. One of the things that would happen if they started using these higher power rockets is they could actually eliminate one of their planned flights, which might save their, their profit margin, but they'd have to buy the end, the rocket itself from SpaceX. Isn't that cool? I think it's kind of an unprecedented situation. Well, SpaceX has proven themselves to be, shall we say, uh, sacrificial for the betterment of the market. I you know? tend to agree. If anyone would go for it, it would be Elon Musk. Yeah. I, I want to believe that, Carl. I don't know if it's true, but I, I hope they do. Well, I, I hope so, too. I mean, their open sourcing of all the, the plans for their cars and stuff was yes. was uh, indicative of that. And one more thing, by the way, it wasn't just the Cygnus carrier that was lost when this mission was lost. Do you remember the Arkid guys, the guys building the space, the small space telescope that you get your selfie with? Yeah. They had one of their test vehicles on there as well. It's uh. not the space telescope. It was a test vehicle, but it was lost, too. And there was... Dozens of small student missions, yeah, yeah, that were all lost as well. There was a lot of stuff lost there, and they're they're going to have to refly it all. I hope Orbital stays in. I hope they find a way to make this work. And if the best way to do it is using Falcon's rocket, I hope they do it. Absolutely. Well, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep, time to avow I will never again buy products from Bob's Discount Rocket Engines dot com. <laughs> <laughs> Order two rockets, get the third one free. Only exploded once. <laughs> I, I have a return. I have an RMA. Can, <laughs> but I, I need it's a this pile of carbon. Yeah, it's a pile of charred metal. Oh, It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today... Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant.net solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero and hey, they have stuff for Xamarin now as well, so check it out. Awesome. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Dimitri S. Wolf. Congratulations, Dimitri. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Dimitri. And Dimitri just won the D-Experience subscription. Big pile of awesome from Dev Express. Uh, by the way, I did confirm that that little Pac-Man running in the – that's Mark. That, that is Mark. He told me. I he said, yeah, that was, that's me. That, that's me. <laughs> that's Mark Miller. <laughs> uh, if you don't know what it. we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .netrocks fan club. 
We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away sponsor stuff. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to join to win. And uh, well, I guess we're not asking a question here, but... Uh, <laughs> no, we're not. Have you seen anything cool lately that uh, that people might, wanna, might want oh, to uh, add to their collection? Yeah, my taste in gadgets is so weird these days, you know. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you... Uh, one of my favorite gizmos just recently, nowhere near $5,000, but is making me very happy, and I convinced Steve Forte to get one, too, was uh, Linksys's new WRT1900AC. It's router? The, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wireless NAT router, but it's much bigger and beefier. It's got four antennas. It supports A, B, N, uh, G, and AC. Hmm. And it was, I just felt like it was time to upgrade. Yeah. It's got lots more power. I was really happy with it. About 200 bucks. Okay. Yeah, Which is a prob- lot for a, a Wi-Fi these days, but it was worth it. Yeah, but you know, when you get the cheap ones, they're always going down. You always got to unplug them and plug them back in. Yeah, you know, they're crappy. They're, yeah. So. It's something you use every day. You should get a good one. Right. Okay, I, I guess it's time to talk about uh, Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2 that crashed in the yeah, Mojave it, it, Desert. It, it, the news keeps saying it crashed. It didn't crash. It broke up in flight. Okay. Um, I've read the NTSB report so far. We do not have any conclusions here. Um, for those who aren't really familiar with the spacecraft, you know, there's sort of a story here. Um, year, a few years ago, Peter Diamatis, who uh, is a multi-billionaire, was led an X prize mm-hmm. to to uh, to have a prize. I think it was ten million dollars to for someone to build a reusable vehicle to fly into space. And in this way, d- defining into space as 60 miles up, about mm-hmm. 350,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bert Rutan, the famous, famous, amazing man, Bert Rutan of Scaled Composites, built Spaceship One that, uh, that achieved that and uh, won the X Prize. And uh, along came Richard Branson, who said... Uh, I want to commercialize this. I want to be able to take uh, six people up to that height, give them their astronaut wings, uh, four minutes of of uh, a free fall, mm-hmm. and bring them back to Earth repeatedly for a reasonable price, which I believe was $250,000. Okay. And so that is where Spaceship Two came from. And the model is very much like the Pegasus rocket. There's a, mm-hmm. a, a mothership called White Knight that lifts the spacecraft up to about 40,000 feet. And then they let it go, and it fires a rocket engine, and that rocket engine then shoots it up to 350,000 feet. You have your, your moments in, of weightlessness, and then it comes back and lands. Mm. Now, what makes this hard is when you get up to that altitude, there's no longer enough atmosphere to fly it like an aircraft anymore. You have to fly it like a spacecraft. And, in, and in, when you talk, this is very similar flight profiles to what the X-15 did back in the, uh, the 60s. And the way they solved it with the X-15 is that they put uh, little uh, directional jets, little rockets that they could use to keep the aircraft oriented correctly as it fell back through the atmosphere. And it's expensive to run that stuff. The hypergolic uh, fuels that they use for those little... Uh, orbital maneuvers mm-hmm. or uh, 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 maneuvering jets 
they're very, very toxic, extremely dangerous stuff. And it's one of the reasons when after the space shuttle landed, they would have to approach it in uh, uh, with evacuation nozzles and things to clean up any of that hypergolic fluid. It's super toxic stuff. Right. And so Rutan didn't want to use that. He had to come up with a different way to cause the spacecraft to be stable on reentry. Now, the problem with reentry is you can get into a really nasty tumble. And once you get spinning like that, you can rip the vehicle apart. And so his innovation, the brilliance of Spaceship One and Two, is this system we call feathering. There are two long arms that come out of the back of the of the the ship, and uh, that look like wings, but they're really not wings per se. It's a it's a lifting body. These are just directional stabilizers. Mm-hmm. And when they're coming back, they normally go straight back when they're on their way up, and when they're landing. But on the reentry phase, they feather. They turn upward ninety degrees, and what that what that does is it causes the spacecraft to fall obliquely. Rather than trying to fall by its nose and getting into a tumble, it falls via its belly. Huh. A little bit of air as it starts to accelerate downward grabs those feathers and keeps the ship stable in a very safe angle for reentry. Okay. It's a genius design. No, no two ways about it. Unbelievably clever. And it may be what actually caused this accident. Hmm. Now, the That's engine itself... Is, was the original uh, uh, suspect in all of this, but it looks like the engine wasn't at fault. To keep costs low, and remember, again, we are dealing with a commercial venture where they're trying to make things efficient and inexpensive. Right. The original engine design that they used in Spaceship One and initially in Spaceship Two uh, was what they call a uh, an HTB engine, and that's basically a rubbery fuel uh, that you cast into the into the uh, engine body. And you mm-hmm. p- fire nitrous oxide across it, which is your oxidizer, and mm-hmm. cause a spark, and it burns the rubber fuel. It's very powerful. It's very short-lived. The total runtime of the engine, no more than 90 seconds. But it will get you up fast enough to be able to get that high-altitude run, and then it's over. They're quick. They're the upside to them. They're easy to refuel. You just pull the cartridge out, put a new cartridge in, go again. And that was part of the requirements of this vehicle is that it was almost completely reusable. They didn't want to fall into the trap of a rebuildable spacecraft like the space shuttle. They wanted it to be reusable. The problem is that HTBB uh, engines are relatively expensive, and so they had been experimenting with a new engine using a different kind of plastic rather than a rubber, a mm. polyamide plastic. Mm-hmm. Then polyamide is similar to nylon and Kevlar, but it's again, it's just reducing fuel costs. Still uses nitrous oxide. Now, there was an incident a few years ago involving this engine where uh, a test on the ground caused an explosion that killed three people. Oh, man. Uh, but, you know, engine tests are engine tests, and they are dangerous. No t- two ways about it. And subsequently, they made improvements to the engine. But it coincidentally, and I do want to concur- say this very strongly, coincidentally, this was the first flight of this new kind of engine uh, with using a different fuel. Okay? And again, it's one of the reasons I think it was the suspect from the very beginning. So it looks like um, the flight started at 9.20 a.m., and yep. the the release of the 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 spaceship from the carrier was at 1010 and the problem started an anomaly i guess was measured 2 minutes later yeah it's really seconds into it right so there were two people on board that spacecraft peter siebold and michael alsbury and michael alsbury did not survive mm. and he's going to say that right up front that pilot sucks. and co-pilot terrible the vehicle so the vehicle gets dropped 
It then fires this new engine, accelerates upwards, and then there's an anomaly. The, the vehicle tears itself into pieces. Now, the pilots did not have ejection seats. Okay? Mm-hmm. There was the, they were wearing pressure suits and they were wearing parachutes. Hmm. So they could, they had onboard oxygen with them so they could continue breathing if they lost pressure in the, in the vehicle. They were expected, if they needed to clear the vehicle, to get, unbuckle themselves, get out of their seats, open hatches, and jump. Doesn't okay? necessarily make it possible if the whole thing is no. And that up. is not what happened. Okay. Okay. Uh, Peter Siebel, the survivor, was thrown from the spacecraft, still in his seat. He was then able to unbuckle himself and open his parachute and survive. He was thrown from a vehicle that was traveling above Mach 1, which means he has flailing injuries. Uh, they talk about it only being an injury to his shoulder. Yeah. That's most likely, when you get hit by air that going that fast, it tears you apart. That's terrible. Okay. Uh, and, and Michael Ellsbury was not able to escape the vehicle. We may never have had an opportunity to, and his body was found in the wreckage. So mm-hmm. again, not a crash. The vehicle tore itself apart. Yeah. The NTSB's initial report, this was a test flight. So because it was a test flight, it was heavily instrumented. Mm. And uh, including, they had cameras everywhere, including a camera on the pilot and co-pilot at their bay. And so they, and they've recovered this footage. Nobody's seen it outside of the NTSB and immediate crew. And I don't know that we want to. No. But this is what the NTSB said. I'm going to read it in detail and get it right. Okay. Two seconds after the engine fired, the spacecraft was accelerating and it just broken the speed of sound. It was in what they call the transonic regime. The feathering handle was unlocked. So there's a control on the console that locks the feathering arms, those long arms that go back and that pi- uh, that are pivoted for reentry. Now, there's a reason that they're locked. When you're going through the speed of sound, there's a series of compression waves that hit the vehicle in different spots. Once you're beyond the speed of sound substantially, that evens out. But in the transonic regime, from about 0.98 up to about 1.1, 1.2, pressures are very complex and so the arms are locked in place so they cannot move until you're going fast enough then you can unlock the feathering arms and later after the engine's no longer running you activate the feathering mechanism that actually pushes those arms up okay for some reason the co-pilot unlocked the arms early they have the video footage showing that he did this so nine seconds after release, the feathering was unlocked. They were moving at about Mach 1.02, so they were in the transonic realm. And that was the first event? Like there was no other anomaly measured before that? No. The telemetry shows that. They actually me- they have a, a, a meter that shows that he unlocked it. But, that, but there was nothing that happened before that. There was no, they can't figure out why he unlocked them. No. All right. Two seconds later, the arms started to move on their own. They weren't commanded to move. Nobody set them to move. But because you're in the transonic regime, it's understandable that they might be have a compression wave hit them that would force them to move. As m- Within a couple of seconds of the moving, the vehicle tore itself apart. Uh. And apparently in the video footage, the co-pilot was a- 
was trying to shut down the engine after unlocking the arm. So he may have been aware of what happened. The pilot appeared to never know what went on. But the pressure that would have been exerted on the vehicle. Was it the pilot that was killed or the co-pilot? It was the co-pilot that was killed. Uh. And believe me, by all accounts, the pilot should have been killed too. There was no way out of this vehicle. This was impossible. It is utterly a miracle. And it was the co-pilot that unlocked the arm, not the pilot. Right. And the pilot who was flying the vehicle at the time was completely unaware, according to the interview. He had no idea what happened until suddenly the craft tore itself apart. Wow. And then he was thrown from the vehicle. He may or may not have remained conscious. He came to at some point, was able to unbuckle his seat, deploy his parachute, and survived. Wow. Um, Amazing. And again, I don't want to blame anybody. No, this no. is what's been seen on the video. This is what's ha- what we know so far. And uh, without a doubt, a, a very talented uh, pilot passed away. And there are folks who are pretty angry about this whole thing. There was a, a, a clearly a friend of the co-pilot that was interviewed within an, a few hours of them identifying him as dead, who's, who was blaming Richard Branson for killing a friend. Wow. Uh, and there is an interesting pressure here. This was, you know, again, they're trying to control costs. And there's folks that were saying this is, they shouldn't be doing, this is not worth a man's life. This is just a plaything for the rich. Yeah. Right, it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars to take a mission, to take a flight in this thing. The whole thing's ridiculous, and I would have to disagree with that because the bottom line is making progressions in space and in technology to reduce cost is part of what makes it available for everyone else. I would liken what's happening here to car racing. Yeah, generally speaking, the drivers and the owners of those cars are very wealthy. They are rich people with playthings, but the technology they develop for their race ultimately trickles down to benefit everybody. And yeah. occasionally the process of testing those technologies causes a fatality. Or even, you know, the early days of aviation where people were making all sorts of contraptions and trying to fly them and killing themselves. Yeah. Or yeah. when they were, if you want to literally equate it to back when the U.S. mail started paying for air mail service. Yeah. And pilots were pushing how long they flew, how far they flew, what conditions they flew in. Right. Because they only got paid if they delivered mail. Yeah. And some of them died doing it. Mm. You know, I think it's very similar. And I don't want to discount Spaceship Two as a one-trick pony right. either. NASA has already committed to buy multiple flights in Space Station Two to buy all the seats so that they can put weightless experiments in it. Their idea is to test experiments before listing them all the way to the space station. Mm-hmm. Cause that's really expensive to do. Yeah. So to be able to spend a, a few million dollars to fly four minutes of weightlessness and be able to test the mission before you spend tens of millions of dollars to lift it all the way to the space station, mm-hmm. totally sensible. It's uh, they're interesting stories, tragic, but uh, life goes on. I think uh, I agree with you, man, that uh, maybe this particular incident was mishandled, but... Uh... but For the most part, I think they're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to call these guys heroes. You know, they 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 may have been breaking territory from a, from an actuarial point of view, but they were... They knew what they were doing. They were test pilots. They were professionals. And, and there was an incident. And I think, I think they would fly again in a second. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, We'll we'll eventually get, months from now, more detailed reports on both of these incidences that'll 
provide us more clarity. But I know folks were asking, and I think we had enough. I've been holding off doing this show as long as we could to have as many facts in place as possible. Yeah. But uh, we are uh, in a time of experimentation and a time of excitement, and, and these incidents are going to happen, and they'll continue to happen. You'll, yeah, I, I appreciate Elon Musk's position on this, that he is very conscious that these things could happen to his equipment and his people too. You know, we're we're doing the best we can to do it right, but it's not guaranteed in any stretch. So uh, my, certainly my thoughts are with the families that have been affected. Uh, I think they would agree that uh, Michael Alsbury knew what he was doing and uh, flew willingly. Mm. And, uh, and it was uh, a sad thing that has happened. But uh, if, it, if it stops it from happening again, helps other people be safer, it'll certainly have been worthwhile. It'll be Absolutely. part of a long legacy and a long history of pushing boundaries. Absolutely. We're going to leave it there, folks. And uh, we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a